So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, son of Barashel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barashel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, Let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed, they answer no more, they have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have now come to the last section of the book of Job. And for the third time, we are introduced to a new character. And this new character has been somewhere hidden in the background, listening to the exchange between Job and his friends. And now he has come forward to respond. His name is Elihu. Now, who is this Elihu? Is he a good guy? Or is he a mixed up fellow like Job who was correct in some things, mistaken in others? Or is he just like Job's friends, who, was, who has come to torment Job some more? Over the centuries, there have been mixed opinions about Elihu. Some consider him to be a self-righteous false prophet. Some believe he was just a joker, placed here for some comic relief in the midst of a depressing situation. Some believe he was just causing interruption and God would eventually cut him off when we come to chapter 38. But after careful study, there is evidence that Elihu's words are to be considered as coming directly from God himself 
and that he is indeed a prophet of God. Let us consider some of the reasons why we can come to this conclusion. First, you will notice in verse 2, unlike in the case of Job's friends, the writer of the book includes Elihu's genealogy. Now this is important. This shows that this man is significant, much like Job. It helps to confirm his status as a prophet and servant of God. It says that he is the son of Barashel, the Buzite. Uh, the Buzites are believed to be de- descendants of Buzz, one of Abraham's nephews, who was the brother of, guess who? Uz. Very creative in choosing the names, weren't they? Um, who may have been the one to settle the land where Job was from. Secondly, let us consider Elihu's overall message. Some claim that Elihu sounds a lot like Job's friends, but that would be to miss the point of Elihu's overall message to Job. His message is entirely different than Job's friends. Job's friends said that Job was suffering because he sinned. Elihu says that Job sinned because he was suffering. He didn't handle his suffering well. Job was right in correcting his friends for their false accusations, but he corrected them incorrectly. He did it sinfully. This is something that every Christian can relate to. Isn't it true that when we're suffering, when we're being tested, when we're frustrated, is when obedience becomes a lot more difficult? Unlike the Lord Jesus, who although was the divine Son of God, perfect in obedience and without sin, yet he learned obedience through what he suffered, according to his human nature, of course. Thirdly, Elihu gives four consecutive speeches from chapters 32 through 37, and he is never interrupted by Job. And Job never answers to correct him. Not only that, but fourthly, God never rebukes Elihu. He will eventually rebuke Job and his three wise friends, but he never rebukes Elihu nor corrects what he says. Uh, To some, that sounds like the Lord just ignores and brushes him off, but considering the character of the Lord, this is hard to believe. It sounds more like God is picking up where Elihu left off in chapter 38 and completes what Elihu begins. At some points, he even repeats what Elihu says. So Elihu can be viewed as a preparatory figure, someone who cries out in the wilderness, preparing a way for the Lord, much like Elijah and John the Baptist. He is a man of God, sent ahead of God with the word of God to Job and his friends. And in chapter 32, we are introduced to this man of God's zeal. First, we'll see the man of God's zeal to vindicate the name of God. Secondly, the source of the man of God's zeal and wisdom. And thirdly, the man of God's zeal for the truth of God. First, we see the man of God's zeal to vindicate the name of God. In chapter 32, 
we witness a shift in direction. And if you have followed the story of Job and all of its nuances, it may be confusing to you. Because it says in verse 1 that Job's three wise friends ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, this seems to contradict what is obvious throughout the book. God has declared Job as righteous, a blameless and upright man. And God will affirm Job as his servant. And he will later say that Job has spoken what is right of him in the end. So which is it? Is he right in God's sight? Or is he just being self-righteous? I I hope we can all answer that, that the answer is both. This doesn't take away from the fact that Job was a servant of God and that he was also a type of Christ. He was a type of Christ in his innocence, his sufferings, and his eventual vindication, that is the clearing of his name. He was a suffering servant of God. But just like all of the types of Christ we find in the Bible, and just like all the followers of Christ, Job is flawed. Remember, every man of God is a man at best. Every godly man in this world is both saint and sinner at the same time. I've heard it from the mouths of Christian teachers that it is impossible for a Christian to be a hypocrite. Now, the Christian is not a hypocrite in the ultimate sense as the Pharisees to deny the need of a Savior, to deny Jesus Christ. But every Christian can be and is hypocritical at times. I believe we must come to a better understanding of the doctrine of sanctification and how it is a process of being made holy and yet at the same time, there remains all forms of corruption in every part of the believer. Because you would have to ask, what is the point for the Christian to gather with other Christians to hear the word of God if we're already perfect? Remember what Paul said to Timothy. That the word of God, as it is taught by teachers and preachers, is not only to comfort and build up the body, but it is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. The Christian needs to be corrected at times. There needs to be a renewing of the mind, as Paul says. I know in our cultural climate today, People do not like to be corrected. But if you are a legitimate child of God, you will be disciplined and you will be corrected. And you'll receive that correction. So we can be affirmed by God and rebuked at the same time. It doesn't change our status as children of God. It didn't change Job's status just because he needed to be corrected. And the means that God uses is his word through the working of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And this is what Elihu represents as he comes with the word of God to a fellow believer or believers who have erred and they needed to be corrected. Just like when Nathan the prophet rebuked and corrected King David, who was also a type of Christ, by the way. And this is where we encounter the zeal of this godly man, Elihu. 
His zeal is expressed in his righteous and godly anger. Four times it says that he burned with anger. Twice in verse 2, once in verse 3, and once in verse 5. It says he burned with anger at both Job and his friends. But why? This will help to answer how is it that Job was being self-righteous or righteous in his own eyes. It says that Elihu burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. See, the godly man's zeal does not come from a place of personal offense. He wasn't responding to Job because he was personally offended. No, his zeal was to vindicate God because God's name and good character was at stake. Now, Job was right in the fact that he justified himself against his friend's false accusations, but he was wrong when he justified himself at the expense of the character and good name of God. He made it as if God was in the wrong for causing him to suffer. But who on this planet has the right to accuse God of wrong? It's like that famous response from a dear saint in the Lord who is now with the Lord, R.C. Sproul, when he responded to a question that suggested that God's punishment of Adam and Eve was too severe, he said in response, what's wrong with you people? This creature of the dust is going to accuse God, the holy creator of all things, of wrong? Who does he think he is? Later, God would agree with Elihu in chapter 40, verse 8, when he says to Job, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That was the problem. He was right in defending his innocence, but he was wrong in accusing God of guilt. Because in doing so, he misrepresented God. But not only Job, his friends misrepresented God as well and failed to answer Job. And this is why Elihu also burned with anger at Job's three friends, because they had no answer for Job. They couldn't provide a sufficient answer to the question as to why he was suffering. Instead, they just said, it's all his fault. So while Job was blaming God, his friends were blaming him. But his friends were bad attorneys. They didn't provide enough evidence to condemn Job of any wrong. Yet they still declared Job to be in the wrong. That doesn't sound like wisdom at all. It sounds rather foolish, doesn't it? And they used their false accusations to cover up their own lack of wisdom. And get this. The reason why Elihu didn't say anything sooner was because they were all older older than him. In their culture and tradition, if you were older, you were automatically considered wiser. You couldn't correct someone who was older than you. That was the rule. Whatever they say goes. So Elihu was timid around the older and wiser men. There is someone else we know in the New Testament who was also timid around the older and wiser generation, and that was Timothy. And Paul told Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Instead, he said, 
for him to be an example and devote himself to the preaching of the word. And in a sense, this is what Elihu will do as he begins to defend his zeal. He turns to Job's friends and speaks to them for the rest of this chapter before he turns to Job. So secondly, he defends his zeal and his wisdom by revealing the source of the authority, his authority to speak on the matter. We must all ask the question, what is the source of our own zeal? Because people can be zealous for all the wrong reasons. Or you can be zealous for the right reason and go about it the wrong way. And yet many people claim that their authority is coming directly from God, just like Job's friends. But as we have established, and it will be proven, Elihu's words actually come directly from God as he is an inspired prophet from God. He says to them in sum, I'm young, you're old and wise. So I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I showed you your due respect. And I said to myself, I'll just let them speak. Let the guys who have been around longer and who know better teach their wisdom. Until I heard all that you had to say and it wasn't much of anything at all. And so he comes to the conclusion that the source of true spiritual wisdom is not found in the traditions of men. Your level of spiritual wisdom does not depend solely on your age or how old you are. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. It is by the Spirit of God that we come to true wisdom and understanding of spiritual things. It is by the Spirit of God that we both receive and teach the word and wisdom of God. Jesus contradicted the traditions of men as he was revealing himself. He declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Because it is the spirit in man, not just the human spirit or soul, but the breath of the Almighty, his Holy Spirit, that makes man understand the things of God. It doesn't matter how much experience you have in this world. That may help. But truly, it is the Spirit of God that reveals true spiritual wisdom. True spiritual wisdom comes from above. Much like when Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Elihu says, I think it's time to listen to me, the prophet. Let me also declare my opinion. So thirdly, we see the godly man's zeal for the truth of God. He has been waiting and listening to the words of Wisdom from Job's wise friends, even as they stumbled and searched for what to say next. He gave his attention, but none of his friends could refute Job nor answer his words. They had no answer to Job's pain, and they did not refute Job when he accused God of wrong. In other words, they had no leg to stand on. And so he issues a word of warning that we would all do well to heed. 
Beware lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. In other words, they became hyper-Calvinists with their reasoning. When they couldn't respond, as long as we have wisdom, let God deal with him. It's not our responsibility. Let's just go our own way. The problem with that is that they did not find wisdom. And it would be to deny their responsibility as friends. Their lack of care for their friend was evidence that their zeal was coming from the wrong place to begin with. But Elihu says, Job has not directed his words against me. And so I will give him fresh words to hear. I'm not going to use your words against him. He is going to hear what he should have heard from you from the beginning. Because at this point, they have been silenced. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And Elihu just can't wait in silence. He has to speak. He has to declare his opinion. He is full of words like when like wine and new wineskins, and he is ready to burst. The spirit within him compels him to speak. And he won't find relief until he opens his lips and gives Job an answer. He sees where Job is in his life, and out of love for God and love for his neighbor, he must say something to correct his way of thinking. But remember how Paul would describe his zeal Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is why preaching and teaching is not to be considered just some guy up up here letting off steam. But it is a labor of love. And this labor of love requires impartiality. Because he also adds that unlike Job's friends, he will not be partial or use flattery for the sake of impressing man or exalting himself. If that was the case, then he might as well be under God's judgment, he says. Uh, Flattery is defined as giving excessive and insincere praise to further one's own interests. So flattery is deceitful and it is a sin. It's a form of lying. Job's friends taught the wisdom of men, men who may have been around listening to them. They were flattering themselves and each other, speaking to make themselves look good and feel good. But Elihu says, he is not here to flatter anyone or to meet anyone's expectations or agendas. He has a fearless devotion to the truth of God. And if you have a fearless devotion To the truth of God, you may expect that you will be persecuted to some level. People outside and inside the church will oppose you. People who say they believe in the same truth. Again, remember Paul and how he said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. Because Christ demonstrated a pattern in his ministry that shattered the agendas of men. So Elihu demonstrates that he has a zeal 
to vindicate God because God has sent him and God compels him to speak the truth to Job. He is not here to teach human wisdom. He is not here to speak out of self-importance. He is not here to make friends. He is here out of the necessity to proclaim God's word. This is his only purpose in the book of Job. Then he disappears, if you don't know this. Because God has put his truth in his mouth, in the mouth of man. And thanks be to God, he still does that today. This frame of mind is expected of every minister of the gospel, but also to some degree, it is expected of every Christian. Do we have this sort of zeal for God's truth? When we hear someone misrepresenting God, do we burn with anger? I know out in the world, you're hear it all the time. I mean, there's false teaching all around us. And there is not enough time in the day to fight every battle. But what about when God is being misrepresented by those who claim to know him? Like Job's friends. How often is he misrepresented today by those who believe in him, who say they believe in him, in the church? This is why false doctrine should make us angry. God is our father. Imagine if someone misrepresented your father, if you have a close relationship to your father and you love your father. Uh, Imagine someone misrepresenting someone who is close to you. But now, they're misrepresenting your heavenly father. How much more should that anger you? Because it is a misrepresentation of God and his word, especially when God is being blamed for evil. How often is God accused of evil today? There are a few times we find in the Gospels where Jesus becomes angry with a godly anger. One of those times was when the worship of God was being desecrated. And so he cleared the temple. Another time, was when the Pharisees were seeking to catch him desecrating the Sabbath by healing someone with a withered hand. So so you can say that he burned with anger toward religious hypocrisy of all forms. And he had a zeal and a love for God and for his people. But also we must be careful and examine where our zeal is coming from And that it is not coming from the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man that's constantly being pushed on us today. When Jesus cleared the temple, the disciples remembered that Jesus was fulfilling scripture. And they thought of Psalm 69.9 that said, zeal for your house will consume me. So how do we know that our zeal is coming from God and not from man? First, it must be founded on the word of God. Can you justify your zeal? That is your zeal for God from scripture? Uh, We're not talking about your emotions being mistaken for God's leading. A lot of people claim that God is leading them to do, do a whole host of things. But can you justify it from scripture? But that's not all. 
Because a lot of people appeal to the word of God as their authority, and yet they misrepresent, misinterpret, and misapply the word of God. A lot of people use the word of God to justify their actions and worldly agendas. So secondly, we need a proper interpretation and application of the word of God. We must come to a better understanding and have a better representation of who God is. We need to be taught and learn doctrine, such as the doctrine of God. Both Job and his friends devolved into erroneous teachings about God. Both went off into extremes, if you didn't notice. This is usually how it goes. But Paul tells Timothy that his responsibility was to do his best to present himself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Not using it willy-nilly. Unfortunately, oftentimes we lose zeal for the truth of God. We become indifferent toward doctrine. We don't see why it matters, practically speaking. We just want to live good lives without having to think about it. And it could be for a variety of reasons. It could be pride. It could be laziness. It could be the fear of man. It could be that we are listening to the wrong voices who speak irreverent babble or myths, as Paul calls it. Or you may be trusting in yourself. Jesus warned some with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The Pharisee could not deal with the fact that he was a sinner in need of forgiveness, just like the tax collector. He could not receive the truth of God and he looked down on other people. So those who receive the truth of God are marked by humility. Theology and doctrine does not lead to uh, a stuck-up personality. It does not lead to pride. It ought to lead to humility. Jesus, being the prime example of humility, humbled himself to become like us, to bear our sins on the cross. This is where his zeal led him. It led him to self-sacrificing love for God and his people who were once God's enemies. It led him to die to fulfill his father's will. It didn't lead him to make a lot of noise. It didn't lead him to be Come a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It led him to die to fulfill his father's will, to die for our lack of zeal, by the way. He wasn't here to flatter anyone. He had a zeal for the work he was given to complete. He had a zeal for the truth. Jesus said to Pilate that everyone who is of the truth Here's my voice. But like the postmodern that he is, Pilate responded with, 
What is truth? There are all sorts of truths. That just proves that postmodernism isn't modern at all. It's always been around. But that way of thinking leads to a lack of zeal. Little did Pilate know that the truth was standing right in front of him. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life that was given for us to make a way to God the Father. Do we believe this truth? Do we have a zeal for this truth? I pray that you are able to answer in the affirmative. And may the Lord God grant us zeal for this truth.